Welcome to Libre Lounge, a podcast about free software, free culture, and all the other interesting aspects of user freedom. With Christopher Lemmer Weber and Serge Broklowski. All right, welcome to Libre Lounge. I'm Serge. Oh, I was distracted thinking about our wonderful theme music, uh, which couldn't be a better selection for this show, don't you think? Uh, Chris uh, sure. Weber, by the way. <laughs> All right, Chris. What's our show about? Uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, we've got this. Uh, it's about computers. It's about, um, you know, free software and free culture. And it just feels so appropriate to me that we have this nice chip tuny thing, which is why you were... You immediately agreed when when I I proposed that we we do this because it's it's absolutely the culture. Um, I mean, you know, we've got this '80s '90s e type aesthetic to things, and uh, um, well, you well, do. That's I would say that's a big part of of your um, unofficial branding is the '80s D and D sprite kind of culture, which which you've integrated into your into your programs. I and I integrated it into the website without you expecting it as well. That's uh, true. Uh, but you're right. I think that you're right that uh, that that aesthetic is well. A, it's becoming very popular with '80s nostalgia, but it's also a big part of the culture of of Unix and also of of the GNU Linux and and free software in general. Is this uh, as, as it came out of the '70s and '80s? Uh, we have retained a lot of that uh, culture, and we've 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 just labeled it the Unix culture, or sometimes the hacker culture. So that's what right. we thought we we talk about today is is that hacker culture. What are its origins? How has it changed? Uh, where we are today, and what are our challenges going forward with with having a, a culture that is specific to computer programs or an operating system? Yeah. So um, I think. You know, so I think it's interesting uh, in that hacker culture and free software culture is kind of associated with these things, but it's not necessarily tied to the overarching goals of having, you know, user freedom. Is that, that seems correct, right? Yeah, we don't need to say, oh, we have user freedom, therefore we're into Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> Those two things are, are tangential. Or, or roguelikes. Right, or any kind of, that's right, Dungeons & Dragons being a stand-in for generic uh, fantasy role-playing. Or or the opinion that, you know, since we're making this website design, that obviously it should have a fixed-with-font, uh, fixed which I set up on LibreLounge.org, and then you were like, why does this look like a BBS? Yeah, and I, I think for, for people who are um, around um, my age, uh, we have fond memories of BBSs. We have fond memories of of the '80s and role playing games, and uh, you know, connecting online was a big thing. I remember when I was a kid, and we had, you know, I had a VIC twenty, and that was the first computer that I learned to program on. And I remember distinctly writing programs and saving them to tape, and rewinding the tape and loading them back. And that there was a, a beauty to to that. It was it was anachronistic looking back, um, but there was a beauty and a simplicity to it that was very exciting. And we always felt, at least I always felt, like we were on the cusp. A lot of this, a lot of these technologies, like modems, for example, were bridging 
the analog world and the digital world. And that's very much how it felt at that time, that we were, we were on the cusp of this thing that was coming. And we are now in that world. And yet I think our, our free software culture and free culture culture have, have largely remained rooted in, uh, in that period of time. Well, free software culture especially, I think that free culture, maybe not quite as much, but um, but I, I definitely agree with the free software side of things. I mean, uh, heck, when we were when we were debating the choice of uh, uh, songs for this, I the other one I really wanted was Cyberpunk Moonlight Sonata, also by Joth, and you're like, you're, and I think you were like, you know, this sounds like too intense for a lounge. Uh, we got that feedback from other people when I ran it by them as well. But you know, that whole idea of having a cyberpunk aesthetic is kind of in again and kind of ties into that like yeah we're you know breaking there is this kind of cool aesthetic of like that slightly aligns with free software and the like you know yeah we're we're taking back this you know uh things for the user you know we're fighting for the user and stuff like that well, you're, you're, you're referencing the, the the movie tron which came out in in the very early 80s um, and there was this idea that computers were going to be this democratizing force. And, uh, and that, that idea actually was not just in the 80s, but also in the 90s, right? It became, it went from computers are going to be the democratizing force to, well, the internet is going to, to be the democratizing force. And, and now we're seeing federation and decentralization as the democratizing force. And free software itself is rooted in this idea of, of democratization or at least empowering everyone. But I think let's let's go from the beginning. Let's talk about the origins of hacker culture. Um, and we can we can trace that back to MIT, which was largely um, described in the book Hackers um, by Levy. Um, do you want right. to talk about that? Sure. So Stephen Levy wrote this book, Hackers, um, Heroes of the Computer Revolution. And it kind of starts in... The 60s, when uh, the AI lab at MIT was first spinning up, and then this kind of culture kind of appears around it. And uh, my understanding from people who are familiar with the time is that the book has some inaccuracies in it. Um, but, you know, I read something where Gerald Sussman's like, you know, yeah, there's a lot of errors in the book, but it captured the feeling of it. And, you know, that book actually was really important to me in some ways when I was discovering free software stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, um, this is, you know, really it, this whole idea of there being, uh, this kind of sharing ethic in the AI lab. I totally understand how that bridged out. And the book goes into some other things too. It, all, it then kind of diverges from that when it goes into the seventies, which is about, you know, the, uh, the hardware, the, what was it called? The homebrew computing club, right? Uh, where, uh, the Apple was made, but originally that was much more kind of ha- hackery at the time before apple computing appeared uh yeah i think the modern equivalent of that would be the um the 3d printer community and the rep rap right so the hardware community in general i think maybe yeah i mean that's right the 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 we would talk about the you know the open hardware the free hardware um communities and so the rep rap was this 3d printer it was the first it was the first uh, small-scale 3D printer, and the idea of it was that it could be made by anyone, and then that was later commercialized by MakerBot and others who are now – and now it's, it's – aside from the RepRap, it's actually quite hard to get a full um, open or free hardware 3D printer. 
um, including the MakerBot, which originally was committed to uh, open and open specs for their hardware designs, but have but have since changed. So it it does remind me a lot of of that movement, and and including that excitement that we had when we were able to say like, okay, we can produce something. Um, from scratch, just from our imaginations, we can produce this. And and you're right that 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 uh, Stephen Levy captures the excitement, the playfulness of the hack the hacker ethic in a right. great way. So the the book then moves on. So it's really in three parts. It's a uh, it, it you know the the AI lab and then the hardware side, and then the last part gets into what felt really weird to me as just about. Uh, like games in the 80s, like game companies in the 80s, and it felt the most disconnected from hackerness, but it, it didn't feel disconnected from the nerdness, right? Like we're also, in some ways, the free culture, or, sorry, the free software culture uh, kind of connects to that era of kind of nerdiness has always kind of been part of our community because of the way that many uh, many people being from those communities kind of connected uh, with things, it, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I would say that's that's accurate, and, and I would say that for another perspective on hackers, there there are other resources as well. But the RMS biography, Free as in Freedom, talks. I mean, it's very Stallman centric, but it talks about uh, his community at MIT and his view that it was disintegrating. Um, and you're right that that there was kind of this this slight disconnect in the way that the the book um and hackers uh, bridges 80s video gaming with um with the MIT hacker culture although i think a lot a lot of those uh, actors at the time were doing things that mixed hardware and software they were playing in in interesting ways and and there was a lot of um interplay in the in the different communities far more than there is now i think that that the at least at the very beginning, the distinction between who was playing and who was um, modifying hardware was a lot less. And that, and that, of course, is going to be with anything, right? The early adopters are going to tend to be more um, into it and maybe get more technical. Right. So let's rewind. Let's rewind to the very beginning of the book, and then I actually want to talk about how the book Hackers closes before we start kind of critiquing the book itself. Um, the the very beginning of the book, uh, early on, when it's starting to describe the characters, kind of be like the people becoming aware of this culture developing. Uh, it, there's a, a a few a number of components that are laid out, um, like a number of principles that are laid out, and you know this is pre software freedom specifically, but you know one of them was access to computers should be unlimited in total. Second one is all information should be free. Uh, third one's mistrust authority, promote decentralization. Fourth one's hackers should be judged by their hacking, not by bogus criteria such as degrees, ace, race, or position. Um, second to last one's you can create art and beauty on a computer. And the last one's computers can change your life for the better. And the whole book kind of grabs that and weaves that together and everything. And then when you get to the very end, it kind of rewinds back to the MIT AI lab, which was dissolving at that time because of kind of the fight over the Lisp machine, which is probably an episode of its own. And there are multiple perspectives of that. We usually hear, I think, in our community, Stallman's. Uh, um, but, you know, from from Stallman's perspective, I think what, what was, you know, being, you know, the book ends with Stallman in tears, basically, um, right before Stallman launches the uh, GNU project and the free software movement. 
and so it, that book came out right on the edge of the GNU project being announced. Uh, so, it, and I think that that was not even realized how timely that that would be when the book came out, because you know it wasn't possible to time travel to see that. That's right, and, and um, I think this is very common that communities tend to uh, strengthen when they feel that they're under threat. And in, in Installment's case, he felt that the changing community around the Lisp machines in MIT and the AI, and the AI lab in general, and the the way that the AI lab was working with commercial entities and using non-disclosure agreements and and restricting code in a way that was new to him posed that existential threat and made him uh, solidify what had previously just been ethereal principles. And, you know, he didn't invent free software. He, he codified the values of free software from these earlier hacker values, which again, Levy put in his book and described in his own way. Right. So I remember when I picked up this book, it was at a time where um, I kind of needed it in a sense because I was going through uh, my the universe the college I was at uh, Barrett College had been bought by DePaul University and they gave it five years to kind of turn around and become profitable and on year two a new administration came in and said oh this land is profitable we'll just sell the college instead and I was part of a movement to try to keep it open and we failed and I was in some ways searching for a thing and had been experimenting with free software. And this story really connected to me and gave me some meaning. And, you know, like, and in many ways was the intro point for me for connecting to the kind of culture uh, uh, that, that I think we call hacker culture in the free software community. And I know that you had some similar experiences, right? Yeah. Um, I came into free software in 1997. Um, I was uh, in college and not fitting into the culture there at all. Um, at the university I was at, I was extremely depressed and just felt very aimless. And there were a confluence of events um, that we could talk about in the future that that came together and that got me into into learning um, what well, at the time I was calling Linux and uh, and by extension of course free software and and the the thing that really solidified free software for me was actually an article in Forbes magazine about free software and specifically Richard Stallman and his ideas um, that software should be free and I think for for both of us these stories have an important um, purpose in our in our lives as free software advocates. They work very similar to um, this is going to be a flawed analogy, but but Bible stories. They're apocryphal. Um, the story that we're talking about is that uh, with Richard is that Richard Stallman is is at his MIT lab has a problem with the printer and is normally able to fix the printer, but now the printer driver is is proprietary. He can't get access to it, and he's enraged by this, and and uh, that he feels it's a betrayal of everything around him that this happened to him. This was a very similar story that happened to me actually in in school. Again, I've got multiple stories of how I got into Linux and free software, but the the one I'll tell now is that 
I was running, uh, my dorm was, was empty except for me. I, I, my roommate had moved out and I had this crazy great setup. I had my desktop on all the time. I was running a web server. I also ran, uh, a, a server that came with Windows 95, uh, that let it act, let my computer act as an answering machine. And it also could read my email. Uh, over the phone. So I would call my room. It would read me my email. I, I could surf web pages that I put up on my own web server. It was great. And one day I went to my computer and it said, oh, you need to upgrade um, the web server. And I don't remember what the web server was called, but I think it was called something like Microsoft Personal Web Server. And they said, now you have to use um, I, you know, Internet ISS Server, I believe that was the name of it. And, and I said, okay, fine. I'm happy to do that. And I did. And it said, oh, well, to do that, you're going to need to use the latest version of our web browser, Internet Explorer. And, um, at the time I wasn't using Internet Explorer. And I said, well, why do I have to do that? But I said, fine, go ahead and do that. And then, and then it said, oh, uh, Internet Explorer now has active desktop. Do you want active desktop? And active desktop was this idea that Microsoft had that you would, want to have all these HTML and JavaScript and Java widgets right on your desktop. And I didn't know anything about it at the time. I said, yes. And, uh, and I said, okay, reboot your computer and everything will be hunky dory. So I did. And my computer ground to a halt and all my data was lost and I couldn't put the software back. I couldn't just revert back to an old version. Microsoft had decided that this was the version that I was going to use and it didn't matter that the old version worked fine for me. I was forced by Microsoft to upgrade. And that made me very angry. And I swore then that I wasn't going to be enslaved, quote unquote, enslaved by Microsoft. Um, if I had software that worked, why should I listen to someone else tell me what I should do? And so that was the impetus of me um, running Linux. And it and the, the RMS story felt very connected to me. It felt very... Um, personal, but it also felt very much like a myth, right? There's this mythical figure, um, again, like Moses or like the Buddha, right? Where, you know, he encounters this frustration and then overcomes it. And in his overcoming it, he doesn't just personally overcome it. He says, oh, well, if I can't make my printer work, I will create a whole new world uh, in which all printers will work. And all software will be free to everyone. And it was an outrageous idea that he had that we could simply fork the entire world and make a whole new one based on freedom. Um, and that was a very compelling idea for me, especially at 19, especially when I was feeling so very alone and needing a community and needing belonging and needing a sense of purpose. Uh, th those ideas connected very deeply with me and, and, held me through some very dark periods in my life. Okay, so now that we've yeah, so I, I, now that we've discussed the book Hackers and how, you know, it kind of connected and and similar stories about that and how they kind of connected to our own lives, maybe we should put the brakes on things and go into the jarring mode of uh critiquing uh the things our own that we culture love. and maybe yeah. a, and a tome that we love, right? And this can be painful. Um there's a great blog post, we're going to put it in um, it was actually originally a talk, and I think the video has been uploaded as well, called uh, Programming is Forgetting Toward a New Hather, a Hacker Ethic by Allison uh, Parrish, I think it is, or maybe it's Parrish. I'm not sure. 
uh, uh, presented at Open Hardware Summit. And this book, this blog post largely critiques the book Hackers um, and starts with Allison saying herself, I also kind of grew up in this culture and, you know, I grew up, you know, adopting this as my own. And uh, um, she hadn't read this book, but she had been told about it a bunch of times. And, you know, she read and we'll get to the we can get to the jargon file next, but, you know, she read the jargon file, Eric Raymond's version, not the original and, uh, um, and, you know, adopted a lot of that as hers and, and all these things. And then, you know, but kind of realized that she was in some ways kind of standing in some ways felt like she was standing on the outside, looking in sometimes kind of unfairly. And it kind of came to a head for her when she read this book and had an experience that was pretty different from mine, uh, especially in this one part of the book, uh, which has um, so you may have seen the picture. Well, okay. Before I get to that picture, there's a, a part in the book where um, there's this person who is in the AI lab and and she's working on uh, and and the book says she was a officially sanctioned user with each one of those letters and capitalized uh, named Mark and uh, named Margaret Hamilton and she was working on this uh, weather simulation project and she tries to compile her thing and it just breaks and she cannot figure out why it broke. And then the answer is, is that the hackers had rewired the hardware of the machine in such a way to accommodate their new compiler so that the original compiler of the machine wouldn't even work. And, you know, she was upset and the administration got upset and, you know, in the book kind of, puts this kind of laughing uh kind of like well you know you know it's those hackers and you know the the you it, kind it's of the boys will be boys kind of thing right where right. where and, their play where, where their vandalism of the hardware that she was using for her research is played off as play you know is written off as playfulness rather than destructive or or vandalism right and i mean you know to some degree i do understand you know, the desire to modify the machine because there weren't that many of them and to try to do something that's an improvement. But uh, the the book kind of makes it look like, well, you know, it was her mistake. And, you know, and kind of as this blog post or and talk correctly point out, she's one of only a few female characters in the book who appear who are not love interests. And who is Margaret Hamilton? Well, you may know Margaret Hamilton from a famous picture of this woman standing next to this enormous pile of printouts as tall as her of code that she wrote to be able to uh you know run a space mission to run the apollo uh and she was largely responsible for a lot of that code and that's the person that the the book is kind of being like oh she was an officially sanctioned user and i never made that connection when i read the book and it was kind of i'll admit it was kind of jarring for me to read this blog post um which is not to say that i dismissed it but it took me some time to digest in the sense that, as you said, this book kind of laid some stories for me that I developed a narrative that when something else in the world came contrary to that narrative, it kind of felt like a punch in the gut. Yeah, I, I think that for many of us, whether it's stories uh, from um, – our history. So I'm thinking about in the United States, we have Thanksgiving. And when I grew up, the story of Thanksgiving was very clear cut. It was, oh, there was this explorer Columbus and he discovered the new world. And 
And I grew up in a time where that narrative was was changing, and we were talking openly about uh, indigenous people and about the cultures that were already present, and that Columbus did not come with open arms, um, and that the pilgrims also did not come with open arms, but that there was a very antagonistic and exploitative uh, change. And and the reason I bring this up is that a lot of these stories about the early hacker and free software cultures are similarly complex. It's the stories that, that we would like to tell ourselves that, that are our culture's stories, our culture's narratives that move us and propel us. But we also have to take a look at what was the other side of that. And when we think about uh, the culture's treatment of women, it, it, it definitely has been a stain on our community that, that we have not, um, as a group, treated women very well. And, and also that we've had other problematic power dynamics. Um, and to that, I, I want to reference a talk um, by Gus Andrews that she gave at Hope uh, this last year, Hope 12, t- entitled The Problem with the Hacker Mystique. And in this talk, uh, Gus Andrews brings up the hacker culture and it's a slightly different hacker culture. And we can, we could talk about that. I don't know if we will, Um, but she definitely references the free software communities and how these problematic attitudes have impacted um, not only our issue of inclusion, but, but directly been a reason for things like power abuse, including uh, sexual exploitation uh, and, and possibly worse. So these are, are, are also part of our legacy that we are now having to address. And I think the same way that you're feeling this, Chris, I'm feeling very conflicted. These stories um, and these individuals are, have a special place for me. Um, they're not just regular people, even people, even, for example, Richard Stallman. I've spent time with Richard Stallman. Um, I have seen some of the problematic behavior at the same time, there's the apocryphal Richard Stallman, and I have a really hard time separating those two out and separating out the fact that you know he and, and his movement are so deeply important to me, and at the same time, being able to say to him, uh, this particular thing that you're doing is not acceptable, or this approach that we as a community are taking is not acceptable. Right. Um, and so I do think... So, so I think that it, I don't want to say we should be dropping things, but I do say that we should be critiquing things, right? Uh, and in some of these things may, you know, some of these things may be really important to hold on to to some degree as in terms of, you know, kind of being our legacy and a sense of community, right? We do want a sense of community in our communities. We are bound together and sometimes can feel good when as a community we can, uh, you know, mutually identify with things, right? Um, on the other hand, that can flip to the level of exclusion. So in some ways, and, and even some of the things that we may might do might be to try to reverse that um, and then may have those elements in them themselves. And I think a really interesting version of this uh, in multiple regards is what's called the jargon file. Now, before, I think before, most... we, before we go on there, and I do want to talk about the jargon file because I, I think it's a central... Um piece of cultural work that we that we come around um something that that i've been thinking about as we're talking 
Um, and I don't know if, if there will be something similar for you, but um, I'm Jewish, and part of the Jewish custom is that we have a holiday called Passover. And at on, on Passover, we recite the story of Exodus, which is a story of the Jews being um, escaping Egypt. And there are many questions about the historical accuracy of that event, um, but it that story and it, that story is is the cent, is one of the central themes of Judaism. And every year on Passover, we recite that story, and we recite it in the first person. We talk about ourselves as having escaped Egypt, and in that retelling, we will often critique the story, at least. Um, as part of my tradition, we will talk about recent political events. We'll talk about the historical accuracy. We will talk about these issues and connect the the myth with the with the the situation as it exists today. And I think that that's kind of what we're trying to do here. We're connecting the myth of the MIT hackers of the fifties and sixties, the myth of uh, Richard Stallman. And uh, others, you know, Eric Raymond, who we're about to talk about, uh, and, and others with the reality of where we are today as a community and, and how do we bridge that gap? Sorry. So right. now let's talk about the jargon file. Okay. So the most famous version that I think people know is on Eric Raymond's website, which is called the jargon file, which is a giant series of files actually you know you may even wonder why is this called jargon file when there's like a whole bunch of web pages here and actually uh i think many people this is the only version that they they know of and in fact i think for you yeah when i when i brought up the you know oh yeah and the jargon file even deviate i think that you said oh i didn't know there was another one is that that's right i i wasn't familiar with with any other than the eric raymond i i had thought that the jargon file was a collection of documents that eric raymond had um, collected and curated. Right. So what the jargon file on Eric Raymond's website um, does continue the tradition of defining a bunch of terms that may be used in the community. And, and to a certain extent, uh, I think it's justified in picking up that, you know, from where the MIT AI lab was and kind of the, you know, the free software community picked it up and, and moved on. There, you know, new terms are being introduced, and it perfectly makes sense to introduce those. And oh, actually, we didn't even explain what the jargon file is. The jargon file, in general, is a um, it let's call it a source for finding out when somebody says something like, you know, oh, uh, I snarfed that, which means that they took it from some file and you know they like pulled it into their own, uh, or something like Crap. you know, pipe that right or pipe, yeah, but. Yeah, pipe that to dev null. Like, what what does that mean, right? Well, you know, it can be very confusing as a newcomer to even understand those things. And I remember one of my friends saying she was hanging out in IRC when she first joined a free software community, and uh, as part of her uh, uh, as part of her outreach program for women internship, and she was just looking up terms constantly to be able to understand. And in that sense, having something like this can be very useful because it can help you get pulled into the community, right? But on the other hand, this version of the jargon file is itself um, a very big modification from what the original jargon file was. The original jargon file, which we will link to in the notes, was from the AI lab and some surrounding communities where they had different, uh, which is where, again, a lot of the same terms are still in here. Um, But one thing that you'll notice is, for instance, that the Eric Raymond's version of the jargon file praises, for the most part, 
Unixy kinds of tradition because the free software community started to praise Unixy style traditions because that's what GNU went with. Uh, and Eric Raymond likes those things as well. The original jargon file totally hates on Unix um, because, and a lot of people don't realize this, the original chat hacker community thought that Unix was a bad design. Uh, the Lisp uh, machine was considered the good design. So the original hacker file actually, you know, hates on this. And then Eric Raymond also added a bunch of other things, like uh, some of which I, I would even consider problematic, like this one thing, like Aunt Tilly is one of the more notorious things, which Eric Raymond added as this kind of naive user that doesn't know how to, you know, use a computer. And I've never heard anyone else use Aunt Tilly. I don't know why Eric added that. I think it was Eric's own creation. Uh, but, you know, this... In some ways, you know, I mean, I think we're going to talk about hacker appropriation. It's kind of interesting that this is an example of hacker, the hacker community kind of appropriating itself even, right? Oh, pardon me. Uh, I think that we, we have to make a distinction, right, between the fact that we enjoy the remix aspect of our culture. We like the fact that things can change and evolve over time and how that's slightly distinct from the the idea uh, of of appropriation and, and where is that line for us? So uh, let's let's keep going with this. Okay, okay. But anyway, I think it's an interesting artifact, and it kind of pulls us into the idea of um, you know this idea of a hacker, right? And the hacker, and it is a kind of canonical source in some ways, in both forms uh, of you know some of the meanings that we have, but we. You know, the, the definition that the free software community has of hacker and the original hacker community had of hacker is not really the definition that I think most people think of contemporarily when they hear the term hacker. Right. So we're going to make this distinction now between the term hacker as, as we talk about it. And well, I, and I actually think that there are, there are three um, hacker communities. Um, and there, and, and I'm sure people argue that there are even more. So there's the hacker community as it appears in the free software world, which has a direct connection with this MIT culture. And I would say that it's direct because the software we're using has a direct lineage from the MIT, uh, MIT AI lab and, and others um, of, of that era. Then there is the problematic um, term, you know, of just basically any any internet thug or person doing illegal Ex activities. But I, I also want let's say let's say internet exfiltrator. Okay, fair enough. Um, but let's just say person doing illegal activities on um, on the internet. And then I would say that there's a third definition, which is a, a, a more difficult and nuanced one, where um, we could talk about groups like 2600 um, and Hope. And the term that, that they also use the term hacker, and they would also trace their lineage that way. Um, they're from a um, a community of people that have been modifying hardware, um, maybe playfully trying to figure out how things work. Uh, not and 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 there the area between legal and illegal does get somewhat um, more. Uh, gray and uh, I would I want to say nuanced, but I don't think it's 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 always nuanced. So we have these right. we have these three dis I would say just somewhat distinct meanings where 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 the free software and the twenty six hundred communities do overlap, but but they are they are distinct. Right. 
Uh, I mean, and you can even see the 2600 community in some ways is kind of sitting in between those two, these, the two other communities, I'd, I think you'd say. Would that be about right? Yeah, um, I, I, th- I think that there's, there's, some, there's some truth to that. And, and then uh, I think – and I don't want to go too far down this road, and maybe we, maybe we should talk about this later. And by the way, feedback uh, – we would love feedback um, on opinions and what we should cover. But um, in the same way that the open source community uh, did a lot of whitewashing and removed a lot of our cultural push – in the free software community, the maker movement, I think, has had a somewhat similar effect on on the hacker community. And in, in some ways, made it more inclusive, which is great. Um, and in other ways, made it far more commercial and removed a lot of the mischief that made it fun. Right. Okay. So anyway. I, I want to get to the maker side of things as well, but I think maybe we should also set up. So if we if we look to the version of things that happens in popular culture, though. I think it's strictly the last camp, right? Strictly the people kind of, you know, breaking into systems, right? And, uh, you know, you've got your standard crime drama and you've got that one person on the team or maybe the enemy. um, And there's always a scene of them being like, they type furiously on their computer and they're like, I'm breaking through the encryption. This is a really tough encryption, (laughs) but I'm so good. And then they're like, I'm in, right? (laughs) Right. And it's always that scene, and I'm just I always like every time I see it, I'm like, ugh. Um, but you know, I mean, on the other hand, I can't. You know, I'm sure there. It's I'm not expecting people to become experts in our community, so I kind of understand that. But also, the, what we do is not that uh, dramatic. Usually, <laughs> it's not that dramatic. It's usually dramatically more boring. Uh, um, you know, the but I mean, we do tap into the aesthetic of that kind of thing, though. I mean, even the website. Uh, having the kind of cyberpunky look to it of Libre Lounge does tap into it, right? But the, um, but I think that the, you know, but the thing for me is, so what's interesting is that there was an early attempt to rebrand that category of hacker as cracker, and nobody wants to be called cracker. So of course that the people who want to be called, nobody wants to self-brand themselves as cracker, uh, which, you know, is, you know, not always used in a, a positive term in some other spaces so that never took off yeah, no so one i think wants we're just to be going to be <laughs> right uh <laughs> so anyway we um so so moving beyond that so i mean in the origins of that i think the first example of that was a movie war games which did kind of was kind of in more in the 2600 kind of category in some ways um but uh i think kind of brought that vision to the the forefront of this kind of hacker-like character, even though I, I don't remember if they use a the term or not. But um, I then, and there were some other things, like some articles in between and stuff like that. But then the movie Hackers, uh, completely different from the book Hackers. You know, sometimes you say the book is better. This time the book's not even the same thing, right? Uh, uh, that one, I think, and so, man, so many people in our community love that movie, I think, because of just kind of the over-the-topness of it. I kind of hate it. Uh, uh, maybe maybe much of our audience is going to hate me now, but like it just bugs me how that movie kind of took it, like that movie succeeded in bringing that other version of hacker to the public consciousness as being the official canonical version of what a hacker is. Yeah, I haven't seen it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, no further discussion on that one. So maybe we should. So you 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 had this talk that you wanted to talk about. Um, that that kind of addresses this directly, right? The, the the hacker mystique. Well, I talked about it earlier. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Okay. 
so we we've already kind of discussed that. So there's a side. Um, so I mean, maybe we should get to whether or not we should defend the term well, hacker. Then, well, right? So I think we can do that. We can also we can also go back a little bit. I think maybe it might be make sense to go back a little bit and talk about this idea of '80s nerd culture um, as it appears sure. in in media, right? So you were talking about hacker, but that's that's a bit later. Um, when I think about the culture that I come from, I think about movies like um, the um, Revenge of the Nerds, right? And nerd culture in general, the idea of the, the MIT, I mean, it's very much that MIT hacker, right? It's, it's straight laced. It's wearing a, a white shirt and slacks and a pocket protector. And that aesthetic of computer programmer, an, by the way, almost almost always white and almost always male and affluent is a big part of um, of our culture and and it connects, I think, with the aesthetic of of um, let's say fantasy role playing games and of um, video games of Atari. You know, when I think about a lot of the aesthetic in the the book version, I'm sorry, I haven't seen the film of Ready Player One. That aesthetic is very appealing to me because it's it's the one that I grew up with. I was you know I was born in 1978, so I do remember the 80s very well, and I remember uh, the kind of basements that they were talking about. I remember uh, shag carpeting, and I remember Dungeons and Dragons, and I remember all of those things very fondly as a you know, and I remember them through the eyes of a child. And there's a lot of fondness uh, for childhood in that. And it's it's only later when, and I think we, and we were talking about this earlier, where uh, we've we've started to reexamine what were we not talking about, or what were we not seeing, and that includes a lot of um, misogyny that was part of that culture, a lot of um, exclusion. Um, we talked about people of color not really being, you know, part of that. Um, and I, I'm I'm sure you have things I've been talking for a while. Uh, I do. Um, so yeah, I agree that to a certain extent, our culture is kind of intertwined, um, with a lot of those other types of things of nerd culture. Um, and I I know you wanted to hop back to that, but I, 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 I think we're, um, so the, I, I I do want to actually just wrap up this term hacker thing, because I think that we're, we're pretty close to getting that wrapped up. So the, um, my, because I really have a question for you, which is like, how much should we be fighting to defend that term? That's a that's a great question. Um, so then then we end up thinking, okay, well, what are we replacing it with? Right. Uh, I mean, and I mean, we're not complete. So actually, in a certain sense, the term hacker is actually of the original version is starting to get back into the mainstream by, um, you know, because of things like as much as I hate the term, but life hack does resemble the original term, right? It's kind of like creating creative playfulness that you're messing with the way things work. It doesn't resemble breaking into computers. It has no resemblance to that. Um, and in the similarly hackerspace has, um, you know, a, it, it, you know, a lot of people know what hackerspaces are. They don't think that they're a space for a bunch of people to show up and break into computers. They think of, it, of them as a place where people, you know, you were critiquing the term maker, but, you know, they think of it as more that. Yeah. I mean, a hackerspace is a place where people come together and build cool stuff, show off what they've built, uh, teach each other, 
um, and get access to hardware that, that they might not have access to at home. And that, that idea of community is definitely part of, of the hacker ethic. And yet you're right that it, that the maker movement has largely taken over the terms there, even though we still uh, use the term hackerspace. And I, and I agree with you as well that, that life hack absolutely captures um, the original intent. It, it captures the idea that this is a clever way of coming through and getting something done. And, and, it, and usually not a great way of getting something done. And even though I original, I actually find almost anything, any article that describes itself as a life hack to be incredibly annoying. But yeah, but at least it's closer to the original definition. Sure. So um, I think the, the issue here is that we have to think about, okay, if we're going to replace the term, what are we replacing it with? And what are the cultural connotations that we would get out of that? So the, the problem is that each of each time we replace that term, so for example, in the case of free software, when we replaced it with open source, uh, we changed the the meaning behind it. We didn't just change the term; we erased the past. And similarly, the difference between hacker and maker is, and it's funny because they're both uh, funded by, uh, I believe it's Tim O'Reilly, right? Tim O'Reilly, who was part of of creating. The, the term open source, and he was similarly part of creating uh, the maker uh, term, the maker movement with his, with his um, magazine, Make Magazine. So this, this, this issue, this concern that I have about replacing it is that you get into this cultural appropriation problem. Right. So there's a question for me. And so, you know, okay. So the term cultural appropriation uh, I, I go back and forth about it in talking with this context because there are other communities that definitely the term appropriation, it's much more severe for them than it arguably is for us. Although I'll also say that part of the weirdness about being a nerd culture is we are no longer a marginalized group. And we once were, right? Aren't, aren't like, we, I mean, when you say we're not a marginalized group, I'd like to, I'd like to hear why you think we were and why you think we're not. Because I don't know if I agree with you. Okay. I mean, like, when I was growing up, liking to play video games as your spare time and, you know, being programming and, uh, you know, and even things like playing role-playing games and stuff like that, like, the fact that I liked all those things made me a dramatically a social outcast. And now, like, those things are cool. Right. Well, you're talking about geek and, like, culture. That's true. Well, I I think that making a big distinction between nerd culture and geek culture right, is like okay, kind sorry. of. I, I thought you were saying. I thought you were discussing the distinction between nerd culture and sorry, and between free software as a market. Oh, no, no, no. I'm talking about. I'm talking about. Uh, um, about nerd okay. culture. Um, and so, so I'm saying that that. Uh, so like yes, what I I would what, agree with you that so, that it was never cool when I was growing up to be into computers. And in fact, I was made fun of and, and people said, Oh, you're a computer nerd. Um, it wasn't until the nineties when the internet was really big and people were making a lot of money off computers, uh, that it, it suddenly was very cool to be into computers. Um, so yes, I, I agree with you. So, so I want to tie that back now to, um, you know, a, you know, so appropriation, you know, if you're a person of color, I think is in, in many ways more severe Absolutely. than, you know, the kind of appropriation things that we're dealing with. But still, like, there was a moment where I was sitting 
in the movie theater recently, and we'll link to it. There's a very painful Microsoft ad. Uh, we just rewatched it before the show, uh, Serge and I, and and I think you will agree that it is extra- incredibly painful, it, right? Well, and so describe it for our audience who doesn't want to have to put uh, themselves. Okay. No, I mean, I can I can do it too. It's it's basically um, a a a the term we use is programmer, right? It's it's a person who is just cooler than cool and is boasting about how very cool and how very smart he is. Um, he's fucking wearing a, ba- sorry, I, I cursed, well, but, you we'll, know, we'll put, we, yeah, we, we, it... we haven't cursed, so now we're going to have to have an obscenity warning, <laughs> but, but that's okay. <laughs> um, we can do that. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk, we'll discuss the meta about, uh, about cursing later, but I, I'm frustrated because like the, uh, in, when I watched the video, Morgan looked over at me and she just saw me cringing. And even before she saw my face, I think she knew how I was feeling. I mean, she was cringing too. The, uh, like, she was like, oh man, like, you know, like, cause he, he's wearing a backwards cap. He's, um, skateboarding into the office and it's a Microsoft ad about how, and he's like, I'm a, he's the poochie from know, the Simpsons. <laughs> you think right. the surfing, well, I don't know the who that surfing, is. skateboarding, cool dog who's totally in right. your face and, and he's like i'm a maker and i'm you know like and when i'm like you know making my startup and blah 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 i don't know exactly what the video said but you know it was just like basically i'm the coolest bro because i'm a maker i'm and the term maker you know even the term maker is a is a you know another kind of hacker-ish culture even though i more identify with it as a hacker i still you know i i still kind of identify with that term and it's just so frustrating to see that but i mean on the other hand can you escape that thing if we're aiming to widen the tent can we escape the fact that people are going to want to market it then yeah that's right but let's let's move from um hacker and nerd culture to the free let's move it back to the free software community and let's move it back to some of the challenges that we have um, both traditionally and today, because I think that's really where the, the, the meat of our conversation should be. Not, not, you know, I, I think, a, I think, you know, annoying commercials by Microsoft where they talk about how, um, how cool they are is, is one thing. But when we talk about exclusion, when we talk about, um, you know, people of color, women, and and the lack of diversity um, when we talk about uh, you know there's a lot of depression in our community and and isolation in our community and also you know what what I thought you were going to talk about us as a marginalized group is that there are times when we when we run into the law and um, are are prosecuted for what we do so so I think that's where sure we would it's like- illegal under the DMCA to 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 make be a free user on some devices right and and i remember um and there's a there's a protest people can maybe we'll link to it in the show notes um where a bunch of uh, a, a local linux user group that i was part of we protested the dmca and we actually protested it twice and on the second protest we wore shirts with the decss code um on it and that that's the code that's used by dvd players that allows them to play dvds and the existence of those shirts was a subject of a lawsuit and um and also the publishing of that code in in, in the 2600 magazine was uh, that that magazine was sued uh, and in fact the 
the Library of Congress wanted to take our photos, and we warned them that that this could be illegal. That taking a photo of this of these shirts and then publishing it uh, could be, could be an illegal act. And uh, so so all of that was very salient at the time that that all we wanted to do was play DVDs and the act of playing DVDs was considered a, an act of circumvention. And so I think that's where, what, that's where I thought you were going when you're talking about us as a, as, as um, a persecuted group, but uh, you're so, so let's, but let's talk about this. That, that's no, that's a good, it's a good point. And it's not in, in it's, it's been a bit broader than just those two, you know, also fighting for similar things in the user freedom space, not just free software, like cryptography, right? Like was, um, it was illegal to, uh, in the U.S. to be able to publish, uh, like code to decrypt stuff in RSA, right? Um, like it was considered a, a, to publish it internationally. It was considered, um, or maybe even to publish it locally, right? So there's, there's a, a whole bunch of stuff about that in the book Crypto, but, um, but there's, uh, but like having uh, there's some protest stuff that people similarly wrote the um, code to. I saw a photo of somebody putting a tattoo on their body of um, three lines of pearl to be able to uh, um, encrypt and decrypt with RSS. Or sorry, not RSS, RSA, um, which is an encryption algorithm, and that technically meant that their body was a uh, considered a munition at the time by the U.S. government, and thus they couldn't travel overseas. Right. Yeah, so, but I think, look, I think these, these issues are still salient. And in fact, I think the problem is that we as a community have, have begun to shy away from them. Um, rather than embracing the illegality, we, we've just said, okay, well, we're, these are areas we're not going to go into. And I think that, that's a problem on its own. But when we talked about doing the show, and surprise, surprise, we actually do plan these shows out, what we talked about um, was the issues of um, of inclusion, of how do we bring people in. And so going back to the uh, talk by Gus Anderson, you know, she brings up a, a lot of points about this, um, about how we as a community have, have done a, 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 I would say, a piss poor job of, of bringing people in who are not like us. And I think that again goes part that goes part and parcel to us seeing ourselves as uh, a community and as a as a persecuted community right if you're if you're afraid of the outside you're going to be insular sure well and so the uh, the flip side to that though is um now let's turn it around because i agree with the things you just said but now let's turn it around in the ways in which um we are exclusionary to other groups Right. Um, and one way in which we can be exclusionary to other groups uh, is um, could even be the very aspects of our own culture. Right. If somebody says, oh, yeah, pipe that to dev null and you don't know what that means, you could feel, you know, if you've got imposter syndrome, it could that could shoot it through the roof. Right. Um, so what do we do about that kind of thing? I mean, we don't want to drop it. But on the other hand, it can make somebody feel uncomfortable if they don't feel like they understand what's going on and if we want to widen the tent how do we deal with that problem yeah i don't think we have i don't think we have the the resources to come up with a solution right on on this podcast uh or, yeah i'm not so i mean i think this episode is not going to come out with answers right i think that a lot of these things in this episode are things we're going to have to think about right um but uh but i think that it's true 
that, I mean, the flip side to, you know, the value, the way that we feel connected to a lot of these cultural things, the way we feel culture, you know, connected to, you know, even the peripheral things about nerd culture being part of uh, free software, that may mean that if we were saying that we're a global community, that we may have some trouble reconciling that with the fact that we don't want to make someone feel like they 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 can't be part of it because they just don't get those references. Yeah, um, and I think that's one of the things that we are going to need to do is um, I actually think we need more jargon file. <laughs> um, the jargon file, for all of its flaws, as we discussed, was a critical part of my uh, introduction, my on-ramping process to, to the community. And it sounds like for your friend, it was the same. As flawed as it is, if we want to reduce that barrier, we need to document and we need to iterate and we need to create lots of jargon files. Um, there's no reason that such things have to be uh, limited into a particular time. Right. But let's also, um, so the jargon file is in terms of defining our terms is a good example of something we can do to be able to try to reduce that friction. But there's another thing that Eric Raymond added to the jargon file that I think is a good example of a problem. Um, I'm not going to pull it up at the second. I'm just going from memory. But there's a, a a section in there that I think is called a portrait of a hacker. Um, and uh, oh yeah, a portrait of J random hacker. And even though we say that gender and ethnicity and everything kind of doesn't matter, it kind of felt to me like portrait of a hacker was somebody that looks, you know, like Eric Raymond or myself, right? Um, and that I'm not sure is that particularly helpful. That's right, right. So it's a, it's a tricky thing because we we are of course attracted to people who are like us, and we and we want to encourage people like us. At the same time, when we say, "Well, this is what a hacker looks like," it's kind of this standard of beauty thing, right? Well, a hacker looks a particular way, dresses a particular way, um, and is culturally enmeshed in a particular way. That's a that's a problem for a community that that wants to grow and and wants to thrive i i i'm I'm laughing because i agree with you um but it's also funny that people who generally fit that pattern usually have such a self-image problem that using standard of beauty there is pretty funny even though i agree yeah in fact i wanted Uh, (laughs) i wanted to talk about that actually just even even if we're just going to touch upon it briefly which is that um one of the things that's come out in the last few years is how much depression the the hacker community has and i think that's part of the traditional isolation i think it's it's a problematic part and um my friend mitch altman uh talks about this and we'll link to some things that he said and and um also jason scott of archive.org um talks about this um this issue and and it's it's one that i think we we need to, i think we may even want to do a whole episode about a whole episode about depression what could be more exciting than that but um, it is it is a, a part of who we are, and I think it's part of that that exclusion that many of us felt. And I think it's it's also a, a part of what drew many of us into this community. I came into this community because I felt that I had a home here. I felt that this was right. a place where I was accepted for who I for who I am, and that's the tricky part: is we need to still still be accepting. We need to be bringing people in. And having giving them a home, even if even if they're not, you know, um, upper middle class white males. Right. Uh, so 
so yeah, I mean, so I wrote a blog post on this, uh, I guess, uh, you know, about five years ago um, about my own depression. Uh, I, I actually suffer from, you know, um, pretty regular suicidal ideation and stuff like that. And I, I don't know if everybody knows that. I mean, maybe you know it. If you follow my microblog feed, sometimes that gets pretty dark, I guess. But uh, the but uh, but I mean, and, and content warning on that post is that it, it does talk about some high profile suicides that you probably yeah, we'll, can we'll, guess. We'll put, we'll put uh, a content warning on, on, on the notes for those for the for the links but, that are that are that are, pro- that are possibly problematic. But let's talk about how. Yeah. So, yeah. but but well, I just wanted to say that I mean, I think that I agree with you that it's part of how people, you know, it's it, it can be part of how people get in here. I mean, for myself, um, in some ways, kind of being a broken person, having a place to apply myself, um, can make things more worthwhile. But it even can compound on itself, right? If you are working on these things because it gives you a sense of meaning, you may take on what feels like very world-changing things, um, you know, and then when those things don't succeed, because they often won't because because of the nature of them being so risky, it can make you feel like a failure. Uh, and that can be really dangerous. Um, and so, yeah, I think we should have a, a whole episode on depression, uh, as depressing of a topic as it is. But I agree with you. And I, I also agree that I think that in general, we tend to attract more non-neurotypical people in general to our community, which doesn't mean that people, sh- you know, we're, we're expecting people to be non-neurotypical, but it means that it is a component of many people that we're part of. And, and in some ways, maybe one of the few things that we've historically done well at in terms of uh, um, marginalized groups is that um, uh, the free software community can be a refuge for people who have faced ableism in their lives. Um, certain types of ableism, yeah, not I, all. I, types I of agree. Ableism. I mean, I am I am uh, non neurotypical. I have learning disabilities. I have ADHD. Um, I'm I'm also gifted, uh, which just means I have a high IQ. But I have severe learning disabilities, and um, that that has been a a major um, hindrance in my life, both academically, uh, professionally, and socially. So uh, that, that definitely has always been a component is, is in, in my uh, loving the free software community is, is how we, for the most part, embrace differences or at least accept yeah. them. But, but well, I'll, so I do think we do well in that regard, but and a lot of these other things, sometimes we uh, so I definitely think we do in that regard, and that's part of the reason why you and I are part of this community. But I, I mean, we don't do well in some others, and sometimes we give talk to doing well, right? We, um, you know, the 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 uh, Eric Raymond's version of the jargon file says, "Oh, you know, we don't care about your gender or your race or whatever." Even though uh, if you read Eric Raymond's blog, he obviously cares a lot about people's gender and race. I, I don't want to get into that, but. Uh, um, but you know the we we don't always uphold those ideals that we claim of being neutral about those things, and I think we need active efforts to come combat that. I mean that's why I think outreachy is so important. Yeah, so outreach outreachy is a program by the Software Freedom Conservancy to encourage uh, female identifying people to get paid for their work in contributing to free software. 
Well, not just female identifying. It's also, uh, you know, people of color in a number oh, of groups. Oh, I didn't groups, know that. That's, but, uh, that's, that's news to me. So thank you for, for telling me. Yeah, that was one of the big changes between outreach program for women and uh, uh, outreachy was kind of the increase in Got that it. scope. Um, but uh, but I, I think that in general, yeah, I think that that type of action is important because it doesn't happen naturally. As much as I'd like to say it happens naturally, um, we can't make the claim that, well, you know, gender and whatever doesn't matter. You know, you're we're, we're just judging you by, based on our merits, you know, based on your merits. And, and that's it. You know, everybody has an equal place at the starting line. Well, if you're saying that and then obviously people of color are not showing up and obviously people, you know, who are women and, and other, you know, forms of gender and stuff like that are not as represented. Are you saying that's because people in the aggregate in those groups are not? as meritous that's obviously bs there are other cultural problems we need to work through so so i think we have to take an action so so going things. back i, w- I want to i'd like to start wrapping up and i want to talk about a, a positive part of this which is um there are other communities that we're very similar to when i think about us i think about the the role-playing game community uh the board game communities um, I think that we are similar to the science fiction communities in both good and bad. Um, and I think and I would like to hope that we in the free software community have done a better job than the video gamers, for example, that we have tried to put things in place like codes of conduct to uh, to, to prevent a lot of the situations that have happened with women gamers um, like Gamergate, um, and 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 there that's only one example. Uh, but uh, would you say that we have done a better job? That we're not doing that that if we're deluding ourselves? What do you think, Chris? Well, I think there's been an overlap between people who identify with the Gamergate type stuff and people some of the uh, some of the more problematic aspects of the free software community. To be to be frank. I mean, I have seen forums where, you know, there are people who directly, uh, you know, identify with both of those groups. And, you know, we and and we and I a lot of but I, I think that so I do want to get to the positive part. I'm going to say the negative part first and I, then I'm going to get to the positive part. So I think that I don't think that we're doing better. Um, I but I do think that, you know, we are trying and there is room for hope. And I think that actually we can find some hope in some of these other communities and what's happening. So, I mean, Gamergate's a huge problem, but part of the reason that it's been a problem is because the gaming community was becoming more diverse, right? And some of these critiques were happening. And so I'm going to point out what I consider to be a tremendous irony. I mentioned earlier with the, when I read about the book, um, that critique of the book Hackers and the, you know, programming is forgetting thing, how it felt like a punch in the gut. and when you feel like you've got that punch of the gut thing, when you feel like you've got that critique thing, I think the default reaction, because you want to defend your community, is going to want to be like, oh gosh, this is, this is I want to defend this, so I should move into attack mode, like attack as defense, right? And that's that can be kind of dangerous. But on the other hand, uh, and I think that, that that results in kind of an irony related to Gamergate, and even some of the push back to things that we've seen like outreachy in our community where because people who were in some ways marginalized by being outcasts as you know at some point found a community that welcomed them they may very ironically then become very unwelcoming when that group when that tent starts to expand mm, that makes a lot of sense i i 
yeah, I think that that's the source of a lot of this pushback is, you know, oh, no, I found a community that's willing to pull me in. I have to defend that because if if these other people come in, it's no longer a special place for me. And I think we have to be careful to not fall into well, that. And, and I think there's I think, some – look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, an odd position here and say that there is a little bit of truth to that. I remember the first time I went to LinuxConf. Uh, it was LinuxConf 98. And – I roasted marshmallows with Bob Young, the CEO of Red Hat. That's not possible today. In fact, I remember what, seeing the two of them. It was either in 98 or 99. T- uh, they pulled each other aside and were talking about um, MySQL, which uh, apparently is was called MeSQL or something along those lines at the time. And, and I also remember uh, in 97 going to a dinner with all but Bob Young of Red Hat. It was seven people. And there was a lot of camaraderie and community. And, the, and one of the first people I met at LinuxConf was, and I, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name because it was a long time ago, but he was the, the person who put in Fortran 94 support into GCC. And that's how he introduced himself. And there were a number of people. I was, it, it, it felt very small. It felt very warm and welcoming. And, that is going to change. When you have a larger community, it's going to be different. And I think you're also right, Chris, that you know when you do open up uh, a community to more diversity, that's when you see those uh, tensions rise. It doesn't mean that that's the cause, but but when things hit a certain threshold, that's when the that's when the gears start to grind and when the community starts to need to, to do that self-examination to, to be explicitly welcoming rather than just non-exclusionary. I, I agree with the things that you're saying. And I think that um, I think that we there is going to be this kind of conflict, but it's possible to kind of reconcile it to a certain degree. And, the, it, and we can find some reconciliation by recognizing that there was never that a lot of these things are apocryphal. They're, they're important to us and they should be important to us, but they aren't, a lot of nostalgia can make you feel like there was this, this world of yesteryear that was truly great that can lead to xenophobia. Right. And, uh, and, and we should recognize even, you know, I brought up Eric Raymond's uh, continuation of the original hacker file in this new hacker file. And I do think that some of the additions were good by continuing on uh, documenting what we have, but but we should recognize that our, that you know I, I heard somebody recently say la- language is a river, which I think I don't know if that's a common phrase, but I thought it was nice. But you know, culture is a river too, and you know we've that example of the the jargon file changing is one example of many of the way that things will will change. Right, the 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 hacker culture, of course, is going to change. It's not going to remain using uh, PDP you know, ones through tens on, uh, or one through 11s, I don't remember on, you know, in some antiquated lab, it's going to have to change as the world moves on. And the, the gamer, the world of gamers also facing the same thing and tabletop and in video games. And, and, and we, we should, we should embrace our culture and our heritage, but we also should not use that as an excuse to lock ourselves in and become xenophobic. Um, towards the the widening of the tent, because things will change anyway. You're right. All right. I think with that, unless you have anything else, I think this is a good place for us to to wrap up. 
Um, can I can I just add one more thing about the about the the communities sure. and and stuff like that? Is that I think that um, I find some inspiration from the tabletop role playing game world actually here, in that I've seen um, an effort in you know a lot of our stuff comes from uh, things like uh, um, like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that, which are are fun and great, but have this kind of even some elements of kind of fantasy racism, you know, the the European race looks really great, whereas, you know, the the race that kind of resembles, uh, um, you know, uh, like, uh, Tol- you know, kind of Tolkien-esque racism, um, uh, you know, those things can be problems, but we're seeing in those communities uh, a push to try to um, become more inclusive in the materials and stuff like that. And I, I don't think we're alone and I think we can find inspiration from knowing that this is not a unique problem to us. You're right. And, I, and you're absolutely right that this is something that other communities are coming to grips with. And there's a lot of opportunity for, for cross-discussion and um, solutions across communities. And frankly, that's because many of us belong to, you know, we don't just do free software all day long. We we. I'll speak for myself. I enjoy fantasy role-playing games, and uh, and 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 part of that, I, I also enjoy board games, and I also enjoy science fiction. I'm, you know, I'm the classic geek. So there is a lot of opportunity for us to take what we learn and apply it. Yep. All right. Um. All right. I think that's a great place to wrap up. <laughs> all right. And uh, I, I, I think uh, this is going to and... be a great episode, and and we're really soliciting your feedback, um, especially, you know, um for uh, resources about topics and future ideas. So please be sure to send your feedback to uh, podcast at LibreLounge.org. Or contact us on, uh, you know, Twitter or the Fediverse. I think we're still setting up that account. We've got a con- we've got an uh, about or contact page, I forget which, uh, that people can find us at. And we also have a new IRC channel, uh, Pound Libre Lounge on IRC. Pardon me. Pound Libre Lounge on irc.freenode.net, um, and we'd like to see you there. Yeah, it's it's getting really popular. We've got uh, as of right now, we've got about twenty people in there, and we'd love to see you there if you're not there already. So yeah, please join us on one of our many community forums, and uh, hope to see you at the next uh, podcast. See you then. Yep. See you then. Bye. You've been listening to Libre Lounge can find and subscribe to us at librelounge.org. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. Our theme music is Bossa Nova by Joss, which is waved into the public domain under CC0 and which you can find on opengameart.org. If you'd like to support Chris Weber's work on this and other user freedom projects, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash C-W-E-B-B-E-R. Thanks for listening. See you next time.